Welcome to today's podcast on commercial risks in China. As the globe's second largest economy, China appears poised to take a leadership role on the world stage. Their president was re-elected for another five years, and his philosophy on Chinese socialism was included in the party's constitution, solidifying his power and policies well beyond his second term. The Chinese government has stepped up efforts to address financial risk and ensure social and economic stability through new cybersecurity regulations, enforcement of environmental protection laws, and aggressive anti-corruption efforts. A percolating trade war with the U.S., rising tensions with North Korea, and the One Belt, One Road initiative, however, are fraying geopolitical ties in the region. Businesses with operations in China will need an understanding of the geopolitical and commercial tensions in the region and be prepared to respond to this new environment. In this podcast, RAIDEN's founder, David Lawrence, sits down with Dr. Derek Scissors, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on the Chinese and Indian economies and on U.S. economic relations with Asia. Scissors is currently chief economic economist of the, Chinese, of the China Beige Book. He is author of the China Global Investment Tracker and the Chinese Investment in the U.S. Dataset. He holds a doctorate in international political economy from Stanford University. With that, I'll turn it over to Rain founder, David. Derek, thank you very much for um, joining us and anticipating a terrific conversation. Uh, why don't we start off, um, just happened to be, the last couple of weeks have been rather interesting and volatile in terms of um, threats of tariffs between the United States and China, and maybe you could give us a bit of an overview about how um, companies who are doing business in China or seeking to do business in China should be thinking about the markets and uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China. Well, there's a short-term perspective and a long-term perspective. The short-term perspective would follow the chorus model where President Trump threatened to abandon the agreement entirely, but the eventual settlement was actually fairly minor. Um, Korea threw the U.S. a few bones. So there was a period of uncertainty. It certainly affected the you know, Korean policymaking, but it turned out to be benign. Um, and presumably the U.S. will not return, revisit chorus for some years. So there's a, there's a, a clear framework ahead for firms operating in Korea. If that were to be replicated in China, uh, I would say, well, you know, we have a few more bumps. It would get settled probably in the next two months. Um, you know, stock markets will go up and down. There'll be the worry that China will act against U.S. companies or foreign companies operating in China. But uh, so starting with U.S. companies, uh, possibly foreign companies who have joined the U.S. WTO complaint. Um, but the outcome will be pretty much holding the status quo. Uh, that's if, if the U.S. is satisfied with things like lower auto tariffs, maybe a voluntary steel quota, older industry uh, that isn't central to U.S.-China trade, um, but maybe disproportionately politically important in the United States. If the U.S. is, in fact, targeting Chinese industrial policy, um, which was partly where the this started out, Section 301 started out concerning uh, intellectual property transfer and theft. It seems to have morphed into a broad, related but broader attack on Chinese industrial policy. That is a multi-year uh, discussion, and it will not go smoothly. And then foreign firms, especially American firms, but other countries that are interested in confronting the China industrial policy, like Japan, are going to, you know, they have to be concerned about their companies being targeted by retaliatory Chinese action. 
Um, so uh, the first question for a company to ask is, what are we, you know, in the short term, are we prepared for a few for, for a period of uncertainty with a fairly good outcome? Um, and, and most firms should be prepared for that. But are we also then prepared for the possibility that this is a multi-year process where we could be caught in the crossfire of U.S.-China tension? And, and this isn't just about the United States. The Chinese, some of the Chinese tariffs that were put on U.S. products were actually, actually will end up hitting foreign companies rather than American companies because the foreign companies are producing in the United States and sending them to China. So um, the short term, I think, is more likely, and so companies can be reassured by that, but there's a significant possibility, let's say 30% of a multi-year U.S.-China dispute, and then the environment for foreign companies, especially American companies, is going to worsen. All right, Derek, as you, you think about um, which way this may go, um, whether this is just some short-term volatility and it all works out, or as you say, that there are going to be some long-term challenges to China's industrial policy. Uh, what, are, what are the things you are looking at to, to give you a clue about whether there are going to be long-term tensions or just you know, some bumps in the road in the short term that, that need to be worked out? Well, I think we had a, a climb down yesterday by Xi Jinping where he did not announce, you know, retaliate, promised or emphasize retaliation against the, the threatened $100 billion in additional U.S. tariffs. Instead, he repeated the same jargon about globalization and China being its defender, uh, but added in a line about auto tariffs, which the, President Trump had just mentioned in a tweet, um, you know, the day before, and then President Trump welcomed his words today. So I think, you can, you know, the proof is going to be in the pudding, but um, throughout this process, in my view, you've had signals from the U.S. and now a signal from China that we'd rather negotiate. And we also have a precedent of the U.S. negotiating a fairly minor adjustment with Korea, which is why I mentioned it. Um, I think so. I, I would expect that as the default. I think the difference would, be, uh, if you're looking for a change, you would see the president's language change, where he would stop talking about how he is great friends with Xi Jinping, and it's everybody else's fault, and he doesn't blame China, and he, you know, he becomes more upset uh, that the Chi you know, a Chinese recalcitrant. Um, within the administration, I will say it's fairly clear that the president is actually most in favor. I'm not saying he's more in favor in the U.S. as a whole, American elements of American business are, are in favor of, of a, a quick settlement with China. But within the administration, the president is probably the most pro-China actor among the major players. So um, if he turns more hostile to China, then to, to me, that's, that's, that's a very, you know, a, a sign that this is going to be a long process because he is repeatedly, uh, Larry Kudlow as well, but I'm not sure Larry Kudlow has any influence over this process. Um, he has repeatedly been on the soft side of U.S. actions. People say, well, he's the one who wanted the extra tariffs. Um, that's not really true. Uh, certainly he went along with them, and he, he doesn't have a, a problem with tariffs, but the president's public statements, I think, are the key on the American side. And on the Chinese side, um, you know, I, I think you, you watch for uh, – 
the U.S. has a has a has this comment period where we announce the fifty billion dollars worth of tariffs and then they don't go into effect, um, and then we might announce a hundred billion dollars worth of tariffs that hasn't happened yet and they couldn't wouldn't go into effect. If the Chinese don't immediately respond to the hundred billion the way they immediately respond to the fifty billion, that would be a sign that they are also becoming more cautious. If they immediately respond, you have the possibility of a spiral. So I'd look at the president's language as long as it remains friendly. Um, that's a that's a sign of a quick uh, a quicker settlement, and I look at whether the Chinese move as decisively uh, in response to the next American action, if there is one, as they did in respond to the first, which immediately led to the U.S. to counter with more tariffs. So those are the two things I'd look for. This is you know it, this is all quite nebulous because it's all IOUs for doing something. None of the tariffs have been implemented yet. And do you take a particular signal out of the uh, out of China's filing a complaint with the WTO? No, I mean the U.S. did that as well as part of its multi-pronged, you know, tariffs, WTO complaint, and then the unannounced but supposedly coming investment restrictions. Uh, the Chinese think that they have a strong case of the WTO. Um, they would like this to be a WTO issue, even if they were, even if the U.S. wins. WTO cases take two to three years. Um, they can often be responded to with a tweak that fundamentally doesn't change policy. So um, I'm not surprised at all that the Chinese would go to the WTO. I'm a little bit surprised that the Trump administration bothered to go to the WTO when it criticizes the WTO so much. But that may have been uh, as a way for our other countries to join the U.S. complaint, which, in fact, is what happened. Okay. Let me uh, shift a little bit because the president has uh, spoken about the massive amounts of intellectual property theft that has um, occurred amongst U.S. companies, and U.S. companies have been rather outspoken, increasingly so, in recent days around uh, the various contracts and agreements that have to be signed in order to do business in China. Maybe you can unwrap that a little bit for uh, our audience in terms of, uh, you know, what is happening, why it happens, and, you know, how companies need to think about uh, the, we'll call it the cost of doing business and how to navigate some of, some of the issues. Well, I mean, the, the nature... Uh, the, let me put some context on this. The environment in China hasn't really gotten worse in terms of the kind of policies Chinese, China applies. Two things have happened. First, growth in the Chinese market has slowed. Um, when you were you know, seeing double-digit growth, uh, 2006, 2005, it was a lot easier for companies to just say, look, you know, we can do well in this market even with discriminatory Chinese practices. Now you're seeing you know, perfectly reasonable growth, but not the pace that, that was seen uh, 10 years ago or a little more. Um, the second thing that's happened is that Chinese policy is now aimed at uh, sectors where they previously weren't uh, competitors. So U.S. companies going to China, for example, in telecom, uh, when they first went to China in telecom, there was no competition, and then there was low-end competition, and now it's comprehensive competition. And you know, every China, every potential Chinese partner that you see, this is also true for European and Japanese companies. Every potential Chinese partner that you see now looks like a competitor, whereas before it looked like, you know, essentially a, a local subsidiary that helped you access the market, and you didn't have to worry about um, them competing with you elsewhere, including your own home market. So that's the backdrop of this. It's not so much that the policies have changed, that the context that they've uh, that they're operating in, slower Chinese growth, and and better tech, better Chinese technological level has made them more of a threat. Um, and the nature of the policy itself, 
uh, you can see the problem, which is China is going to heavily subsidize activity in, in what it considers the strategic sectors. Um, financial subsidies, regulatory protection from competition, maybe free land, uh, and so on. If you want, there are profit opportunities available for foreign companies in those sectors. But naturally, if the goal is technological upgrade, you're supposed to share technology to participate. So, it, you know, the, the, the coercion, I think, I don't, you know, it violates China's WTO commitments, but I don't think of it as, as nefarious. It's much more subtle than that. You don't have to participate in these areas that China is subsidizing, but then you don't get access to the advantages of companies that do participate. And you're left with this, this difficult choice of, you know, in the short term, this is clearly advantageous for my firm, but turning over technology means, you know, we'd have to innovate very quickly. If we're not capable of doing that, the Chinese are going to drive us out of the Chinese market and then potentially compete with us overseas. Um, the nefarious part about it is IP theft. Um, that is a separate, it's a related issue, but it is separate. I don't, I, you know, the, 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 what you have to deal with in China is a policy that is set up where other firms are going to get subsidized. If you want to compete with them, you can get some access to the, those preferences too, but then you have to turn over technology. Um, the IP theft is simply illegal activity, and there shouldn't be any tolerance for it, um, but there is on the Chinese side, and firms have to prepare themselves, um, even if they're not operating in China. I used to tell my clients, if you don't want your IP stolen, don't go to China. Well, it doesn't matter. You can stay out of China, and you can still have your IP stolen. So one of the I think is a semi-legitimate practice that just puts firms in a difficult uh, position. The other one is is just it's it's unfortunately the price of doing business in China and it shouldn't be acceptable. And we hear promises from China of how it's going to stop, but it it has not, and it's been going on for a good 15 years. So uh, great response, and let me um, push back on something you said earlier, mm -hmm. which we hear the clients all the time, which is that. Um, the reason that uh, some of these companies now look like competitors rather than partners is that in the course of the partnership, and because of all the technology we were required to share and open up, we basically lost control of our company and our products, and they've been emulated. And maybe I can uh, get you to sort of comment on, on, on that perspective. Well, of course. I mean, so the Chinese government is looking for advances in a particular sector, and they may have long-standing, as they do in autos, uh, if you want to serve the Chinese market, you have to form a joint venture, or they may say, look, you don't have to form a joint venture, but if you do form a joint venture, you get all these advantages. That's the perspective of the government. The perspective of a firm, uh, of your Chinese partner is, we can steal from you and there won't be any consequences because there are never any consequences. There are Chinese, of course, business people who go to prison, but not for stealing from foreign companies, uh, you know, for wasting money, for various kinds of corruption. There are Chinese courts that make judgments against, uh, you know, Chinese violators of foreign IP and the judgments are tiny. So we have the, the government is setting up a process whereby it's not that as interested in who contributes to Chinese technological upgrade or expanding global markets share, it's willing to have foreign firms participate. But your, your Chinese partner has a very strong incentive to steal from you because why wouldn't they? There are no domestic checks on this. Um, they are in name only. Uh, you know, I've been following f foreign business in China for more than 20 years, and you cannot find a, a, a major action taken 
uh, against theft of trade secrets or other infringement of IP or violation of IP that would deter future action by Chinese firms. That just doesn't exist. So you have the government you know, giving you this difficult choice, and you should realize the firm doesn't have the same incentive as the government. The government just wants progress in the sector. The firm wants to drive you out of business. Um, so that that is ter completely normal. A, a step below the level of policymaking, you have a lack of rule of law controlling Chinese firms when they're dealing with foreign trade secrets. Okay, that's a great insight in terms of what companies, how, how companies should be looking at the cost of doing uh, business and what to be expected. Um, let me switch to the second aspect of the point you made, which is you don't have to be in China to lose control of your IP and your, uh, your trade secrets. Um, maybe you can comment about you know, some of the escalating cybersecurity issues and, and the actors behind it and what's happening in that environment and how, how you begin to advise clients. Uh, you know, so uh, the, there, there are two, it's, it's, I don't want to call it a double-edged sword, but there are two faces of Chinese globalization. Um, one of the faces of Chinese globalization is that the Chinese go out and, and, and uh, invest overseas and they become good partners um, and they're valuable and they can help you, you know, expand your production and hire more people and make more money. Um, you know, I have a data set on Chinese investment overseas. Uh, those Chinese companies involved in those explicit investments, that's, it's rare that that's the process by which China steals your technology. They are looking to operate in other markets and they want to be good partners. The, 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 the other face of globalization that's a problem is those firms become aware of small companies that, that don't go to China, small American companies, small European companies, you name it. Um, so they don't see them, they don't, they don't invest in China, they, their, their products aren't at risk because they have a Chinese operation, but um, China's globalization has meant that you, if you have an innovation outside of China that has, you know, it's going to become, this can become Chinese, China's, Chinese awareness of this is going to become quite rapid. Um, and then you are a target. Uh, and it doesn't matter how small you are. One of the, one of the problems that China presents versus, versus other countries who, who can be aggressive on cyber, uh, on, in the commercial space is that the, is just numbers. There are a lot of Chinese companies and they, um, you know, you're not going to escape their attention if you're suddenly making, and I'll just use a silly example, widgets in Oklahoma better than everyone else because if you're on the internet, they'll find you. And then they're, you know, they might make you an offer, um, but in some ways they're going to target this innovation. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say in terms of, I don't have very many sort of normal, um, you know, clients who aren't doing uh, business with the Chinese who I talk to about cybersecurity. But I, I will say that if you're eyeing China as a potential market because you think you have a product that will really do well in China, uh, a Chinese company is eyeing you as a potential target to steal that product. Right? If you have gotten big and successful enough that you think you can make money in China and this is a, either as an investor or as an exporter, then it used to be that China wasn't global enough to be aware of what was going on uh, in a large scale uh, you know, outside of China. That's no longer the case. So um, uh, you, you need to think of yourself as at risk from Chinese uh, cyber as, as soon as you think of yourself, as, as soon as you think of China as an important market. Because if it's a potentially important market for what you have, then a Chinese entity wants it. Derek, um, you probably, for your clients, have been watching closely um, various uh, 
deals that reached here in the U.S. that found themselves subject to CFIUS review, whether voluntarily or not. And uh, very few, if any, of those have been approved. Um, in fact, none that I can think of uh, in the last year plus. And there have been a variety of national security um, questions raised along the way. Um, and very often, uh, deals that are subject to CFIUS review die on the vine without any real transparency or comment. Uh, maybe you can give us some perspective on um, the types of cross-border acquisition activity, the review process, and not only what the current state of play is, but uh, what we should be expecting going forward. Well, I wouldn't, you know, there are certainly Chinese investments in the U.S. that have not been rejected by CFIUS. Um, what happened from 2017, in 2017 versus 2016, was primarily um, China cutting off the spigot itself by restricting the Chinese private firms that had led investment in the United States, uh, chiefly HNA, but not limited to HNA, um, and, and, you know, at, told them to change their behavior, limited their funding, uh, set, rolled out a set of sectors that were heavily invested by Chinese private entities, um, real estate and, and, and entertainment, uh, chief among them, and said that there was no financing available for those sectors anymore. So that was the 2017 problem. The 2018 problem, as I think you've announced it, is so we, we came down from record-setting investment on the order of $50 billion in 2016 to still healthy investment by historical standards of about $25 billion in 2017. We're now going below that, at least so far in 2018, and there the, the, now the issue is more CFIUS rejections. Um, the question is, uh, has CFIUS moved or, or will it continue to, will it sustain this move beyond national security or has national security just become so expansively defined that it's difficult to, to see the borders? Um, we, we're in a transition period in the United States because there's a bill in front of Congress reforming CFIUS, and until there's some political clarity about where the, you know, what support, the level of support is for the bill, where the administration's going to turn out, um, CFIUS decision makers, it seems to me, now this is not, these are not their words by any means, but it seems to me as somebody who's very close to watching Chinese investment, have, have gone into, you know, uh, better safe than sorry as their approach, which is unless I have a reason to approve this, I'm not going to. Uh, and the default used to be unless I have a reason to, to block it, I'm not going to. And that's been the big shift in the U.S. from, let's say, early 2017 to now. Um, uh, now, there are, again, there are exceptions. You know, Greenland is involved. Uh, Shanghai Greenland is involved in a major property project in New York where they seem to be taking a larger stake. Um, there are acquisitions of U.S. healthcare producer, product pro uh, makers, not healthcare service providers. Uh, the acquisitions of the product makers seem to be going forward. But um, we have a short-term, at least, uh, hesitance on the part of CFIUS to approve anything that might be considered um, politically controversial. We're going to get over that. I think the longer-term threat to Chinese investment in the U.S. is that um, since the OPM hack, uh, U.S. officials, uh, both within CFIUS, Congress, you name it, are very reluctant to turn over consumer data to Chinese entities. So the U.S. block has always been on technology, uh, and now we have this political uh, 
interruption that I think will pass, but I don't necessarily think it will pass that the U.S. is going to say if an American firm, it's a healthcare firm, it's an insurance firm, you name it, has personal data of Americans that they will not allow Chinese purchases. And that is a new, that would be a new development in U.S. policy. I think it's likely and I think it's, it will be sustained, unlike this present period of just political uncertainty, which I think will pass. So as you think about um, Chinese investment here in the United States, what are the areas that you see as um, sort of more easily accomplished uh, versus those that will prove challenging? And of course, um, as we've seen, CFIUS uh, doesn't actually have to reject a deal for it to die. Uh, very often, it, you know, it dies of its own fatigue and inactivity and a lack of a decision actually being reached and by numerous questions uh, continuously uh, being asked. Right. So I think uh, where Greenfield investment, and I, I said this is Chinese government for a number of years, Greenfield investment um, is more open uh, than acquisitions. Uh, Technology we've known has been off limits for a while. Now personal data may be off limits, but that 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 still involves. Uh, there's still plenty of uh, of opening there. There's traditional industry. Um, NetDragon just bought Edmodo, which is a U.S. online learning community. That's not considered to be personal data. Um, so most sectors are open in the United States. A lot of Chinese investment in the United States has been in real estate, which China itself has now blocked. So real estate is still open. Um, Agriculture is open, and you know, to some extent, and this this brings up another question, uh, another point. Um, of course, Chinese firms may want to wholly own; they may want to buy assets outright. Uh, large per 100% purchases of assets. You know, when you're talking about three, four billion dollars, the political environment in the United States is not conducive to that. If you're going to, if you want to make a larger purchase, it would be you know better to be looking at a minority stake. You can buy large, uh, you know, outright buy smaller assets, but there's a size element to this because of visibility. Um, there are a couple of sectors that are closed off by the U.S. There are a couple of sectors closed off by China. Uh, but if you take technology and and I would I would think um, healthcare services rather than healthcare products, which are still being purchased. Those are the two that are off the table from the American side, I think. And then the you know on the Chinese side, real estate appears to be off the table. And technology and real estate are are, are you know important elements of Chinese investment in the U.S. It, if you're going to take them out, you're going to you're going to leave finance um, as, as consider as important. Agriculture is potentially important, but again, a large Chinese agricultural purchase might not fly right now for political reasons. So you think about Chinese investment into our um, so-called Rust Belt, uh, whether these are steel, aluminum, or other uh, automobile uh, manufacturers. How do, you, how do you view that prospect? No, I think, oddly enough, now this may all be sacrificed in the event of a serious U.S. China trade conflict, but oddly enough, that, that's quite welcome by the administration because it means jobs here in those sectors, and that is what uh, the president and his key advisors are looking for. Uh, I think people need to, to throw off a little bit what U.S. policy has been traditionally, which is, you know, the U.S. has sought uh, improved an improved business environment for American firms in China. 
the Trump administration wants to protect national security by ensuring that there's not tech transfer, but it really isn't that interested in U.S. firms being eager to go to China because the operating operational environment is so good there. Um, so that's not the goal, whereas on the flip side, in the past, perhaps the U.S. was suspicious of some Chinese steel acquisitions and some auto auto parts investments, although they, they largely went through. Now I think those would be quite welcome. Um, I think, you know, logistics uh, probably is open in the United States. Um, chemicals, uh, I'm thinking about major sectors of Chinese investment, but I, I do think steel and autos, Chinese investment here is much more welcome than the idea that a more American firms, uh, you know, the, that production is going to move out of the United States. And I realize that's a change, but but this administration has a different view of of inward and outward investment than previous U.S. administrations. Let me shift just a, a little bit because, in many respects, uh, China pre-announces uh, some of its priorities and and uh, what it thinks about. Um, it, it, sort of the course that it would like to follow. So a lot has actually uh, been written about its desire to be a world leader in artificial intelligence and uh, some of the steps it, it is now taking. How do, you, how do you think about that? And I'd also maybe like to get your perspectives on um, some of the efforts that it has taken to um, We'll call it to maintain social control within its borders uh, around its, um, we'll call it its own population, whether it's through facial recognition, whether it's through social monitoring, and essentially the credit, the credit score, yeah, 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 they call it credit score, yeah, right. Um, I, you know, I find the latter extremely disturbing. Uh, I, I will say, I have become considerably more hostile towards uh, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping than I was under Hu Jintao. And part of that, just flatly, is that Xi Jinping is more effective leader than Hu Jintao. Um, you know, just to acknowledge that, that Hu Jintao was sort of followed a policy of, hey, I got my 10 years and, you know, I don't really care what happens while I'm in charge. Um, so it's it, understandable if the Chinese government says we have more effective leadership and now you don't like it. But but she with the I'm going to be president indefinitely and I'm intolerant of people using certain words to describe, you know, my position. Um, this is a reversion in my mind towards Maoism, but it's using modern technology. Um, this is this is he is considerably more dictatorial than Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin. Um, I wouldn't, you know, Deng Xiaoping had his, his dictatorial moments, certainly, um, but but certain the, the later stages of the post Tiananmen stages of of, of Deng Xiaoping being senior leader. Um, so I, I find this intensely disturbing. You know, I, I had a Chinese government official, just as a little anecdote, uh, tell me, oh, you know, if you're traveling to China, you should make sure you 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 get a, a online payment systems account because you know we're not going to be using cash anymore, so everyone's going to have to use those. And I just, you know, I'm not providing information to a Chinese any meaningful information to Chinese. I'm not giving them access to any of my bank accounts and so on. So. Um, there's a lot, you know, uh, traveling to China, living in China, of course, as, as many uh, expatriates do, I would find this, I find it disturbing from a some of something of a distance. Maybe it's more or less disturbing when you're there. But I think that the tendency towards 
cult of personality around Xi Jinping, you know, big daddy and people who used to speak freely about the Chinese government on their visits here are afraid to say anything. It's, this, the, China is getting worse as a political partner of countries around the world. And I, I think that's I think that statement is unobjectionable. It may have advantages as a commercial partner. There's no question about that. Um, we talk about that with Belt and Road. Um, with regard to artificial intelligence, um, you know, I am no expert on such things. I do think if if we knew, if we knew, or the Chinese knew, or the world knew what the key breakthrough technology was going to be, then China is going to be very competitive in that technology. Because once that technology is identified, the Chinese will spend very heavily uh, to to advance um, uh, their their ability, their capabilities in that area. Chinese companies will work together. They're you know not as competitors necessarily, but as partners. So if two pieces of of a breakthrough technology are held in different companies, they're going to end up uh, very quickly uh, merging. So if we knew uh, that AI was the key in terms of whether it's political monitoring or or advanced munitions on the military side, or uh, analyzing market trends and and having your products uh, beat everyone else's to market on the commercial side, then China is in a very strong position. Um, I don't know enough about AI, but I tend to think that there's more uncertainty than that. There's not going to be an identifiable breakthrough in what constitutes advanced AI. Uh, and then the Chinese you know, targeting of certain technologies um, is often quite wasteful because they turn out not to be the, the technologies that really matter. Um, and part of this is just a, a question of what model you believe in. Do you believe in a government-led model of innovation um, or a private sector-led model of innovation? I will say that as firms looking at Chinese spending, you don't really care that much if the Chinese are right. Uh, if, they've, if they've said, you know, we really, this is really an area where we want to upgrade, um, then there are, there are commercial opportunities for foreign firms as long as you can protect your IP. Okay, last uh, question is um, all sort of financial transactions in the global economy are wrapped in uh, geopolitics these days, and a lot has been spoken about about concerns around uh, the expansion of Chinese military interests. And uh, although uh, we seem to be focused on other things here in terms of uh, uh, um, some of the marital affairs of, of the president and things like that, I'm just uh, curious about the what you're seeing through the lens of geopolitics in terms of the so-called flexing of Chinese military muscle and the claims that are being made, you know, seemingly extraterritorially. Um, well, I'm not an expert in, in security. Uh, I think um, Xi Jinping sort of very strongly, much more than Hu Jintao did, identify himself um, as as the the champion of the restoration of Chinese greatness, which has done been done on multiple levels. Obviously, raises the stakes for anyone to stand up to what China claims, at least, are its legitimate interests. So uh, we've seen a back and forth uh, in an area I do know more about recently um, by the U.S. Uh, with the U.S. and China over Taiwan, and uh, Xi Jinping is both the Xi Jinping government is both more sensitive to events in Taiwan, and 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 I would say I don't mean to say this is imminent or or likely, but he's going to be in charge for who knows 15 more years. Um, just the style, the rhetoric. 
the concentration of power, all of that says China under Xi Jinping is considerably more likely to instigate conflict over Taiwan than China under Hu Jintao was. So this gets back to um, cult of personality. Uh, Mao's China had such severe development problems that uh, it was it tended to be at least until the 79 uh, invasion of Vietnam after Mao you know had was gone, it tended to be more reactive in international politics. Uh, but Mao wasn't talking about restoring Chinese greatness, and she is. Um, and restoring Chinese greatness, I think, means uh, uh, the relationship of client states in East Asia. And as, as Chinese uh, historians have talk about all the time, that everyone understanding their place, that China as the Middle Kingdom is at the center. Again, um, you know, I don't know that much about China-India border adjustment and, and, and particular security issues, but I do think the politics on the Chinese side make for a long-term concern concerns about greater security conflict because it will be seen as a challenge to Xi's authority. Derek, I want to thank you. Uh, some very um, insightful perspectives here, and not uh, simply on uh, specific facts, but the overarching, we'll call it, um, thinking and culture um, and what may be driving a lot of the decisions. And uh, you've given us uh, and, the, and the listeners a, a lot to, to think about. Maybe we'll just conclude with the following, um, which is if you were going to tell the audience what to look for in the next, over the next year uh, in terms of greater perspective about the relations uh, with China, what would they be? Well, obviously everyone right now is focused on the trade dispute. Um, and I, you know that's perfectly understandable. As I said before, it could be something that's resolved in months, but it also could be a multi-year uh, source of, of significant tension. Um, I, I think, uh, looking at it from the Chinese perspective, I w I'll give you two answers: the American perspective and the Chinese perspective. I think from the Chinese perspective. Belt and Road is really a big deal in China's international engagement with the world. They've reorganized their government. You know, it has a it's, it's having constitutional status. It was announced by Xi himself. So they are. We've seen changes in reporting patterns by Chinese companies where they stopped being as transparent about what they're doing in Belt and Road countries because they're afraid something bad will happen. Not because something bad has happened, because they're afraid something bad will happen, and then they will be identified as failing. You know, this initiative of the Chinese government. So this is a it's an expanding group of countries. It could continue to expand. This is China's major international initiative, crossing both uh, economic, diplomatic, and in a few cases like Djibouti and Sri Lanka that are talked about endlessly, um, security lines. So, uh, you know, it, it's 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 typical China. It's an intriguing uh, mix of, well, there are commercial opportunities for American firms. Uh, the Chinese are happy to deal with dictatorships and give them, you know, all sorts of support, which is distasteful to a lot of people, including me, uh, it depresses the U.S. on whether we should respond and where we, you know, we don't actually have the engineering expertise that China has. We don't do large-scale uh, subsidized financing the way China does, so we can't respond in kind. You know, if we're not going to respond in kind, what? How can we respond? Where is it important for the U.S. to respond? Where does it not matter? Um, I think that's where uh, the intersection of 
the national level policy making we've been discussing and then commercial interests are going to coincide uh, because, you know, American firms, foreign firms may want to participate in Belt and Road, but the political environment, both locally in the countries involved and internationally, may make that trickier than it would have seemed a couple of years ago. Uh, on the American side, we are still sorting out how big a change in U.S global orientation the Trump administration is going to bring and something that I I I emphasize to people that seems like an indirect it, it's only indirectly important but it could become extremely important is whether the US can settle and can can reach an after agreement because of the US that reaches an after agreement you know the Trump administration in Mexico agreeing on a free trade deal is a, is an excellent sign for US engagement with the world other countries will look at it it will provide a lot more certainty about the future of US trade policy very unlikely the US signs an agreement with Mexico and then starts closing its markets to a whole range of other countries disrupting supply chains and so on there's still a China risk but outside of China NAFTA, signing an NAFTA agreement would be an extremely positive development for, for multinationals. Failing to sign NAFTA puts us, you know, where we are or where, right now, which is a lack of clarity about the direction of U.S. policy. Are we looking to make small adjustments? Are we really looking to change the, you know, the direction of U.S. policy in the post-war era? Derek, thanks. More to come would be great to call upon you uh, for additional commentary as uh, events reveal themselves um, and uh, your perspectives both from spending considerable time in the country but also obviously giving a great deal of thought are invaluable. So thank you again.